And so I learned, while researching this book proposal, that Franklin Delano Roosevelt was as complex a character as any Shakespearean hero. He combined the ambition of Macbeth, the guile of Iago, the eloquence of Mark Antony, the decrepitude of Richard III, and the libido of Claudius into what would no doubt be a fascinating subject for a collaboration with a prominent Shakespearean scholar and edutainer like yourself, Dr. Bucola. Before you agree to co-author Franklin Roosevelt, America's answer to Henry V, do you have any questions? Yes. Who gave you my home address? Well, I had to get creative after you ignored all my calls, texts, tweets, and letters. I called your department and said I wanted to send you an edible bouquet because I was so impressed with your anti-racist Shakespeare talk in Stratford. And they believed you? I do a damned good Jane Judy Dench impersonation, darling. Look, Dr. Nair, I understand why you'd want to rehabilitate your image after being exposed as a plagiarist and a Koch Brothers-funded Hoover apologist, but why do you think I'd commit career suicide by helping you? Because, Dr. Bucola, as Goneril saved a bedraggled Lear, as FDR saved a downtrodden America, you could save me. It's on brand for both of us. Plus, I've heard your voice on episodes of The Electables and have been dying to find out what you look like. Gosh, I hope you're not disappointed. No, I'm quite pleased, actually. Hey, is that a dagger I see in your hand? Yeah, and it's the only bare bodkin I'm ever going to show you, pal. Fly, good Nair, fly! <laughs> Coming to you from Chicago, Illinois, DB Comedy presents The Electables, presidential sketch comedy and history for people who can't afford Hamilton. Today, President 32, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, The Depression Years. Thank you for enjoying DB Comedy presents The Electables. If you would like to keep supporting us, please consider a donation or tip. Go to fracturedatlas.org, the nonprofit fiscal sponsor of DB Comedy Presents the Electables, and leave us a gift. Your donation is tax deductible to the fullest extent allowed by law and will be used to keep us on the air and in the algorithms. Thank you. In addition to our regular Americanists. Hello, Chelsea Denault. James McRae, social studies teacher for the Serenac Community Schools. Hi, I'm uh, Margie Rung, and I teach history at Roosevelt University, and I'm also the director of its Center for New Deal Studies. Which is... Pretty, pretty even on the historians versus comedians. Joe is here. Paul is here. Hi, I'm Sylvia. And Sandy's here. Gina. Hello. Tommy. Okay, Dr. Rung, my job within Democracy Burlesque and these talkbacks is to ask provocative, completely indefensible questions for the sake of starting a discussion. That is true. So I will uh, make 
I'll ask one of those questions that you can either agree with, which I very sincerely doubt, or that, you know, you can refute in a very literate and erudite manner, if, if or, you so choose. You can usually take the path that James and I take, which is to say, well, it's complicated. <laughs> I'll, we leave it up to you. Now, I am going to, throw, based on the uh, Traitor to His Class book that you recommended in your reading list, thank you very much. I am going to theorize that Franklin Roosevelt was not out to help the millions starving during the Depression. He was out to get back at his own upper class because they refused to hand their yachts over to the U.S. Navy during World War One when he was undersecretary. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Good answer. Good answer. <laughs> Another thing that allowed, I believe, based on my reading, that allowed Franklin Roosevelt to be a bit, you know, to be more bold in his reform ideas and his progressive ideas was that his family money meant he was beholden to absolutely nobody. He did yeah. not have any, he had no sponsors, so he was not, you know, he didn't have to scratch it. He didn't have to pay back any favors, like to the Tammany, like to the Tammany machine or any other democratic machine. Or the power brokers of the late 19th century, the, the Hannahs and the, the Ohio, all those ridiculous Ohio presidents, and they say that as an Ohioan. <laughs> So is that why he grew? So is that why he was so bold when he was president? He wasn't used to political horse trading. Well, in a way, I would I would almost argue the opposite in the sense that I did, I think he was kind of beholden, in the sense that he wanted to get reelected, and I think he he really had to figure out what it is what it is people wanted, mm -hmm. and so the depression gave him an opportunity to be bold. Um, because he thought he had the example of Hoover, you know, that's not a path that's going to be successful. Uh, so I don't think he had any grand plans when he ran for office in 1932 about how he was going to tackle the depression, but I think he understood that he was going to do more than Hoover was going to do and that he was going to be, um, much more vocal about, uh, helping people and, rallying people to the cause and he had you know he had a couple of years of experience as governor um of new york to rely on so he had a kind of toolkit with him when he went into the white house that he could draw on so i'm not sure that it's entirely because he was not beholden to others for his his finances um as much as you know he was a politician and he really wanted <laughs> He wanted to stay in office and he wanted to get reelected. And boy, did he. Yeah, think, yeah, he was good at it. I think Franklin Roosevelt is kind of an early example of that old mantra of politicians of don't let any uh, crisis like slip through your fingers. Crises are opportunities. And he, saw, he was much better I, at it than Rahm Emanuel, I think we have to admit. <laughs> Tommy, did you make a finger joke about Rahm Emanuel? That no one else <laughs> you better thought? believe I did. So when you, you said he didn't come in with a grand plan, I think part of the criticism about when he came in, he came in with the what I call the spaghetti approach. He just threw everything against the wall just to see what would stick. And I would think there's probably as many failed programs that he started as there were successful ones, no? Yeah, there may be, uh, I, I don't, I never really counted actually which one, <laughs> that's one which one failed, but um, 
Yeah, I think that's that's somewhat accurate. I do think he had a sort of general idea of what he thought needed to be done. Um, in other words, the economy needed some kind of management, uh, government management, and that how that would be affected was up in the air. Um, so the first New Deal feels more experimental than the second New Deal. So it's a pro I think of probably a process of learning um, after the the hundred days, figuring out what's going to what's going to fly, what's not going to fly, and also of course he's dealing with the Supreme Court. So what's you know what what which laws are actually going to be held constitutional, which ones will be challenged and thrown out. Um, so he had to be I think he had to be quick on his feet, had to be adept at. Uh, figuring out, you know, again, uh, how much support he had for various um, programs. And then if they weren't working, bye-bye, you know, dump it. It's, it. If it's a political liability, which the National Industrial Recovery Act ended up being, then he was not so sad that the Supreme Court declared it unconstitutional. Okay, so that leads me to my next um, overbroad generalization to start an argument. Uh, James, I'm hoping you can put your dukes up on this one. Everyone else can too, but did, okay, I'm gonna say, I'm gonna make it as a statement. Franklin Roosevelt saved the country with the bank holiday right after he was inaugurated. True or false? I think save the country is a tough one. I actually think that the most impactful economic part of the New Deal was the bank reforms that happened in the, the first 100 days and kind of the first set of the New Deal, the creation of the FDIC, uh, you know, using aggressive government action to put money into the hands of the financial institutions to solve the liquidity crunch. That really, um, as much as anything else that was done, stopped the depression from getting worse, right? From going from, oh gosh, the system is really teetering on complete collapse to, okay, things are terrible, but we're going to muddle through a little bit. Um, I, you know, I, I think that that was probably the most uh, important single action that was taken in terms of just stopping the the crisis, which, again, I, and I can't emphasize this enough. This was year four of economic freefall, right? 29, 30, 31, all of 32. He comes in in March of 33 before he gets to start doing stuff. So this had been, you know, really three and a half years of just absolute unmitigated economic collapse for how long was it five days four days or was it an entire week it was 10 days but don't quote me on that yeah i think it was 10 but i think it was also sort of stretched out so some banks were opening up. yes yeah the, the reopening was gradual so was that, was that one of the policies that hoover was really incensed at because we know hoover got real like like hoover fought so hard on a lot of the New Deal policies that he was kind of the reason the, 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 the inauguration was pushed from March to January, just so like some, and, and thankfully nobody else tried to F up an inauguration ever, ever again. Uh, it was never a problem again, which is one of our catchphrases. But uh, was that part of it, Tom, Tommy, Margie? Was that one of the things Hoover was really, really kind of had his pain? Um, I mean, he was mad that, Roosevelt would not work with him to to deal with the banking crisis between Roosevelt's election in November and his inauguration in March. He because he recognized there were I mean there were like four thousand bank failures 
I think that that onus is is on Roosevelt. I mean, that it was kind of petty for Roosevelt to like going, well, it's not my problem until March. So you're on your own and it would help make people continue to blame Hoover instead of Roosevelt for anything that might have happened in In that interim. It's not my problem was essentially Hoover's initial address to the depression. (laughs) So I don't, you know, don't work with tainted people. Bad for his own reputation. It's also not clear. It's also not clear what kind of authority he had. I mean, he's elected, but he's not inaugurated. He's just a citizen at that point. Yeah, I think he could have influenced Congress, which was still, I think, still democratic at that point. Can I chime in on something that I'd like to get an opportunity to talk about, which is speaking of banks, I know that is some of the ephemera that we have in the Center for New Deal Studies is um, FDR banks. And so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about some of the thousands of pieces that are in the Center for New Deal Studies, and if in particular you have any sort of particularly like wacky or interesting items, because I know Paul is all about the amusing ephemera, and he will take anything that you give him here and run with it. Well, there are the shot glasses, but that's that's just such an easy one, right? Like, that's pathetic. Um. (laughs) I hear Roosevelt was not anywhere near as good a bartender as he thought he was. (laughs) Yeah, I don't think he was very scientific when he was He made a lousy Manhattan, apparently. (laughs) (laughs) I I don't drink them, so I don't know, but. Yeah, does that just mean it (laughs) was. I wasn't there. Like, what are we talking? Yeah. Like, it was mostly orange. No, maybe it was an old-fashioned. They were mostly orange when he made them. That's yeah, not that's bad. Bad. Is that bad? That's not I suppose. Bad. Wait, did you mean the color or the ingredient? <laughs> yeah, because old There's fashion- no difference, Tommy. Well, old fashions do have orange in them as a bartender, I can attest. Oh, yeah. uh, what are the other um, ephemera? Yeah, please. From the shot yeah, oh, so we have, um, we have so many things. We do have piggy banks, but we also have a ton of FDR clocks and uh, lamps. So you can plug them in if you want. Do they have little um, cigarette holders coming out of them? No, they don't. But he's usually at a wheel, like he's, <laughs> you know, guiding the ship of state through the storm or something. Um, like, uh, but apparently, I don't know if this is true, but apparently these were auctioned off or, or given away in bars at the end of Prohibition, something like that. <laughs> so, I'm not sure how these things ended up in people's hands, but they did. Um, there are actually, Gina, there's, there's, it's really interesting because I sometimes show pictures and images of these uh, pieces in my class and almost uniformly the reaction to one piece, which happens to be the most valuable piece in the collection is kind of one of, of horror. It's a doll and it's handmade and he's bald Um and he's a little, he looks a little waxy. So maybe it's kind of, he's got that kind of cadaver look. I don't know. But he's wearing a sort of ill-fitting suit. But to me, it's just, an, it's somebody crafted this. And it's all, you know, it's totally, he's got little um, glasses. And I think it's really cute. But my students find it horrifying. And they also, <laughs> they also don't seem to understand. It's really interesting. They don't seem to understand that it's a doll that you would like display on a, a mantle or something they all think it's like a child's like a child would play with this doll 
When they write an action figure, not at all. (laughs) (laughs) They don't know it's it's a tchotchke and they think that it's a real child's doll. Yeah, they they just, they they fixate on the doll part and they're like, oh, well, that's what the child would play. I'm like, no, no, this is not anything. So this is a thing that we can fear more than fear itself, it sounds like. (laughs) (laughs) This kind of sounds like a cursed object, maybe. Yeah, it's a zombie. Yeah. (laughs) So we have teddy bears and Frankie dolls. As opposed, yeah, as opposed to to savoir faire, what uh, Eleanor brought to the White House was Henrietta Nesbitt. <laughs> are you familiar with uh, Mrs. <laughs> are you familiar with Mrs. Nesbitt's uh, reputation as the White House housekeeper? Yes. <laughs> Good, is it? No, I don't think she was. Yeah, she was not going to win any cooking awards. Have you read her diary? She seems like a really nice lady, and she was absolutely devoted to the Roosevelt, but she was a lousy cook by hell. Well, I guess what I read, she was just completely unprepared to take on that kind of job. All she'd, um, been, she'd like worked in a drugstore, and she'd been a housewife. And Eleanor... Yeah, she, well, she was baking for the, the Roosevelts when he was governor, so she would... Mm. And she, you know, according to Eleanor, she was always on time with her baked goods. <laughs> so apparently she thought this was a good That's a what good you want in your food. Punctuality. Eleanor being an egalitarian wanted to live like your average American did. Yeah. And with Henrietta Nesbitt on the job. <laughs> I think she yeah. probably lived worse than the average American based on the cooking. The Dumont Radio Network presents How the Better Half Lives. Brought to you by the Bucyrus Depression Glass Company, makers of plates so elegant that you don't mind if they're empty. And now, here's the best dressed host in radio, Andre Candias. Bonjour, listeners. C'est Andre Candias. Coming to you live from the salon of our newly crowned First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt of the Oyster Bay, Roosevelt's Nesapa, where we're having a tete a tete about her plan to bring savoir faire back to America's Versailles. Bonjour, Madame Roosevelt. I'm sure you mean bon après midi, Monsieur Candias, but no matter. Please meet the lady who shall implement my grand designs for the White House, my housekeeper, Henrietta Nesbitt. Oh, enchanté, Madame Gouvernante. Nice to meet you, Mr. Candias. Well, that's Candias. Uh, well, Madame Nesbitt, despite your delightfully earthy demeanor. I'm sure Madame Roosevelt wouldn't have hired you unless your curriculum vitae was impeccable. (laughs) Uh, I'm not much for toilet water. Mrs. Nesbitt has no professional experience as a housekeeper, but I just had to hire her for the White House after her bread helped Franklin become president. Oh, I understand. Uh, How real politique. Such the scoop we're getting. Uh, Now tell me, Mrs. Nesbitt, how much bread did you contribute to the Roosevelt campaign? Ah, geez. Ah, geez, I must have baked about a thousand loaves for Mr. Roosevelt's shindig. Pies and strudels, too. I've puffed a lot of pastry in my day. I was first impressed with Mrs. Nesbitt's domestic skills when we met at a ladies' club in Hyde Park. A ladies' club in Hyde Park? (laughs) Such coquettishness. Was it the Daughters of the American Revolution? Nah, fiddlesticks. My ma was a crowd and my pop was Irish. 
I met Mrs. R at the League of Women Voters. Now I made a Democrat out of her. Oh, well, uh, charmingly provincial. Uh, so, Mrs. Nesbitt, am I to guess that you married into a prominent family? Ah, please, Mr. Candy Ass. My in-laws is pretty nice, but fancy, <laughs> they not. Uh, my husband used to work in Wales. Well, it's still Candias. Uh, Wales. Oh, uh, so would that be Swansea or Cardiff? Nah, it would be Wales, the big fish. Uh, oh, oh, so Mr. Nesbitt is the scion of an old money New England family that once sent whaling ships around the world? Nah, he had a whale meat company that went kaput. We were so broke, we moved in with my son and daughter-in-law. Uh, Mrs. R really saved our bacon with this White House gig. Well, what are neighbors for, dear? One-upping? No, Mr. Cundius. Helping in a time of need. Oh, okay, I get it now. Mrs. Nesbitt is a charity case. Oh, Mr. Candias, once you sample Mrs. Nesbitt's baked goods, you'll understand that I'm not being a bit charitable. Well, I shall be delighted to taste Mrs. Nesbitt's amuse-bouche. Uh, what delectable entremont is on the menu today? Well, do you like white Scottish fruitcake, Mr. Candy Ass? Depends on what's under his kilt. But, <clears throat> uh, I mean, <laughs> I've never tried it, but as they say, uh, carpe le diem. Here, I'll cut you a slice. Merci beaucoup. <laughs> 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 Didn't I tell you, Mr. Candy Ass? Incomparable. I've certainly never had anything like it. Oh, God. Can't wait to hear what King George V says when he gets a mouthful of that. My husband and I have had greater concerns than living like royalty. As Franklin said in his inaugural address, happiness lies not in the mere possession of money. It lies in the joy of achievement and the thrill of creative effort. Well, mm -hmm. swallowing that fruitcake was certainly an achievement. Ah, thrill and joy to follow, I God, I hope. Mrs. R has bowed to suffer and struggle along with the regular down-to-earth Americans, Mr. Candy Ass, and I'm here to help her do it. Well, you'll be invaluable for that. Ugh. Anyway, mm. oh, you're listening to How the Bitter... I mean, How the Better Half Lives. Ugh. With me, Andy Candy... Randy Candy... Uh, I'm your host. Ugh. We'll be right back after a word from the Bucyrus Depression Glass Company. Makers of plates so well again, you'll be starving in style. Ugh. Where's the can? Down the hall. Just follow the Lysol fuse. So all of this is kind of getting back like something else, kind of returning to kind of my growing up with depression bear, depression era parents who really idolized Roosevelt. And he you know what he did you know like he personally did to bring the country back from the brink now i mention this because one of the things we've been talking about throughout all of these podcasts and we've been talking about in preparation for this episode is looking at 
looking at it through a newer, fresher lens, like through younger PhDs that we have here. Um, because we do research and we know that the New Deal did not help people of color in the South anywhere near as much as it did folks in the North and white folks. We know, uh, like from James, that a lot of these programs didn't really work. But that's, but the, and we know that the reputation for, as Roosevelt was so huge that it took 40 years later, another president, Reagan, whose entire, one, whose, one of his entire bedrocks was to devalue the New Deal, which just kind of shows the power of FDR's ideas that even the opponents had to sort of adapt to what he was doing, much like what Clinton and Obama had to do to adapt to what Reagan was doing to some extent. January 1st, 2025. The location, a lab located deep in Silicon Valley. Good morning, all. My name is Mackenzie, and I am the Policy Project Director here at the Governing Technology Initiative. Thank you for bringing your beta versions of your government management programs to us. We can't wait to show you the Democratic Party operating platform. Same with the Republican platform, Ms. McKenzie. Thank you both. As you know, after the Electoral College riots of 2024, the brain trusts of Apple, Amazon, Google, Meta, and Tesla formed the GTI to remove representative democracy from the dysfunctional two-party system that nearly destroyed it. So to create the best version of democracy, we have to start with a better operating system. So you need to impress me that your versions should be included in the final program. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma Ms. Baker, please describe your governmental operating system. Gladly. The Republican Programming Committee is proud to present Cyber Reagan with the help of General Electric, the Murdoch family, Halliburton, and certain data farms located somewhere in what was once <coughs> called Russia, Cyber Reagan represents the pinnacle of Republican thought, philosophy, and American gumption. We are here to tear down the walls of government interference. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Hopkins. We'll be demonstrating the Democratic Design System, a reconstituted and modernized version of what we deem the best presidential system ever created by mortal man to lead a nation, Robovelt. Uh-huh. Robovelt uses biological cloning, genetic manipulation, an operating system framed by the Federalist Papers, and a formal negation of the 22nd Amendment to bring clear thinking and upper-class soothing to a suffering nation. The only thing you have to fear under the rule of Robovelt is fear itself. Thank you. I sent Cyber Reagan and Robovelt various socio-political issues to attempt to resolve through your programs. So, Cyber Reagan and Robovelt, please present your solutions for funding government. As been determined, 
that a system of progressive income taxes in which those who have the most shall contribute the most is the most efficient method of funding the government in a responsible way. Our proposal has been sent to your incoming message systems. RoboFelt will help with the implementation through a series of fireside podcasts, which shall be released weekly in support of our program, free of charge, of course. Well, we believe the best solution is smaller government and fewer taxes on the wealthiest Americans. Is that it? Yep. Okay. Hmm. Next, how would each party system work with the so-called social safety net? The measure of a country is in how it treats the least of its citizens. Therefore, RoboBelt proposes a progressive tax system to solidify and expand the social services of this country. This is class warfare. Please, ma'am. I welcome the hatred of those who disagree with my program. I'll give you something to input. Oh! Well, um, now please have Cyber Reagan give us its solutions to working with the social safety net. <sighs> okay, here. Well, we believe the best solution is smaller government and fewer taxes on the wealthiest Americans. Mm, I think Cyber Reagan is stuck in a loop. No, that's the correct answer from our programming. Okay. Now let's hear your solutions for immigration. America must beware of non-assimilable immigrants, as mingling Asiatic blood with European or American blood produces, in nine cases out of ten, the most unfortunate results. That took a turn. The country must prevent all immigration for a period until the problem is solved and blood of the right sort becomes American. Uh, but, uh, Robovelt, we are a nation of immigrants. He said that himself. We must monitor those with impure blood who are already here. And you will do this with... Camps. Oh, boy. Algorithms don't lie. Uh, your response, Cyber Reagan? Well, we believe the best solution is smaller government and fewer taxes on the wealthiest Americans. We'll happily hack Robovelt's code for our answer. Look, look that, that can't be right. I have to reboot Robovelt's. God damn it, it's glitching again. Your decision will live in infamy. Happy days are here again. The skies above. All right. Well, thank you. It appears both systems have serious flaws. I would recommend working out the bugs and returning at a later time while we review the other systems. There are other governance operating systems? Hmm. I have an app called T-Droid, a Green New Deal program that Ms. Ocasio-Cortez has programmed, and something called the Bernie Sanders Progressive Community Operating System. 
That one apparently needs a floppy disk drive. I need to scrounge up. You can close your programs now, if you can. There you go. Do we give FDR too much credit? I don't, but I can't speak for other people. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, know I, because if he's I, when I teach, long shadow. Yeah, when I teach FDR and ER, I just, I'm very upfront about the fact that this is not, we are not engaging in like hero worship. That's not, that's not what we're here for. It's very tempting to do that at Roosevelt University, but <laughs> You know, we want to look at people who are flawed and we're going to look at them as sort of an unvarnished view of them and understand them, obviously, within the context of their times. You know, what what was sort of mainstream thought at the time? Where were they pushing the envelope? Where were they not pushing the envelope? Um, I mean, Eleanor herself, she's sort of held up as this, you know, progressive on civil rights, but she, that, it, that was an evolution. That took, a, that took a while for her to get there. And even then she wasn't completely open-minded about it. She had her blind spots. Um, and so I, I guess what I would say about Roosevelt is that you know civil rights was not his legacy. Um, that I don't know that there are many historians who claim it was. Uh, but that, that didn't mean that there wasn't civil rights, important civil rights work being done at the federal level during this period of time in certain areas. And so for example, you know, during the um, New Deal, he supported the appointment of what were then called Negro advisors to each of the agencies whose position it was, was to, uh, facilitate and listen to complaints from uh, either black applicants or black workers in these agencies or constituents um, if, if the department was working uh, with groups then then that person was supposed to sort of be act as a, a kind of unofficial ambassador and Mary McLeod Bethune, who was very active in New Deal agencies and the National Youth Administration, met frequently with FDR about these issues. And she was sort of the informal leader of this, this Black cabinet, the so-called Black cabinet. There's a new book out on it. It's supposed to be really good. I haven't read it yet. But um, so I'd say that there were, there were people in the administration who had more progressive vision about civil rights than perhaps FDR. Um, who pushed various New Deal agencies in that direction. That is not to say that all New Deal agencies, you know, were, were progressive in any way, shape or form. Some of them were quite conservative, um, you know, heinous discrimination uh, went on. So I, I think that's one thing to sort of keep in mind um, when, we, when we talk about the record. And, you know, there's also some misconceptions about how the exemptions got into the legislation for, for example, social security, um, the exemption for domestic workers and farm workers. That exemption did not come from at a request of Southern Democrats. It actually came from some bureaucrat who was working with various groups who said, we have a problem with figuring out how to actually collect social security from self-employed people. 
Um, and so it was it was more of a, unfortunately, more of a kind of bureaucratic exemption that then gets, you know, has, I'm not, or it has terrible consequences down the line. Um, but, it, but it wasn't Southern Democrats who insisted on that being in there. Now, again, other, others, pieces of legislation did have Southern Democrats um, insisting on uh, harmful policies toward African-Americans. So I, 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 what was it, Chelsea? It's complicated, right? <laughs> <laughs> George Biddle, uh, who was a friend of FDR's, he was the one who first suggested federal sponsorship of the arts um, because he had seen what Mexico was doing. And he was sort of enthralled by the, this Mexican arts movement um, that was sponsored by the, the national government. And he said to FDR, he wrote him a letter. They were friends from, from school, from Groton. And he wrote him a letter and just said, I think you ought to, to consider hiring artists who can then kind of bring your vision to life um, in an artistic sense. And so the germs of it were set in 1933 and they, uh, they had a few actually art programs in 1933 that were associated with the um, Public Works Administration. And then, then in 1935, when they created the WPA, they decided Harry Hopkins was, uh, you know, artists need to eat too, so let's have a whole project. Um, and we'll employ musicians and people from the theater and um, writers and, and artists. There's some very future, future very, you know, reputable authors hired by the WPA, like Zora Neale Hurston. Yeah, yeah. So I'm yeah, assuming yeah. that the, the Southern Democrats would have objected to her if they'd gotten the chance, but. <laughs> well, yeah, she, although she was at the Florida, she was in the Florida project. So mm -hmm. she was working in the South. Well, there was also, I, I remember hearing a radio production that Frank Capra made that starred Jimmy Stewart. And it was all about how busy everybody is in the government working for you working to make the world better working for fdr i mean it is impeccably produced it is super slick it is apparently how frank capra and jimmy stewart's hooked up and it's you know and i was sort of alluding to this earlier it is sort of an example of just it sure seems like FDR was way ahead of his time in terms of the media, again, starting with the fireside chats, but even WPA and all of that. That certainly helps when you want to make a myth of oneself or oh, yeah. other people do it for you. Um, again, I mean, I know I keep going back to the fireside chats because I'm fascinated by them. Oh, really I mean, it's, the, this. it's the first attempt at direct communication between a president and they sure seemed awfully successful. Whose idea was it? And were they all kind of done off the cuff or, you know, how's as the writers here, like who, how scripted was it? How was it? Oh, they were all scripted, but I can't remember. Does anybody remember who, whose idea was? He started when he was in, when he was governor. I mean, he experimented with the nascent, I just love the word nascent medium. And I believe his first one was during the, it was during the bank holiday, and he explained banking to the American public. Yeah. I mean, I think I've read a transcript of the speech, and it's like, whoa, I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, he, the, yeah, the first one was about the banking holiday. Um, I mean, if you listen to them, they're, I, I hate to say it, they're kind of boring. They're not like, it, they're, they're sort of conversationalists, but they are scripted. And uh, 
you know, each, he didn't do a lot of them. He sort of spread them out so people would look forward to, to hearing him. Um, they, they're almost professorial. Um, yeah, they're, they're, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I was going to say, I, it's very not like, it's not War of the Worlds exciting, but it's- Or Jack like, Benny funny, or- Yeah, I like your term, James. But I think that was, I think that was part of his, his strength, because I think that he sounds smarter in the fireside chats than I think maybe he actually was, just from like, a, you know, are you a, a genius at policy? Um, which, you know, I don't necessarily, you know, I think Roosevelt was a smart guy, but I, I don't think that he was a policy genius, but- he, when he's talking about issues in the fireside chats, he sounds like he knows what he's talking about. And I think that it, it certainly it wouldn't be something that we would craft for a 21st century media landscape where it's, you know, it's got to be that fast. Otherwise, people lose their focus. But it's, you know, for a, you know, a group of people who are looking for a leader to take command and to help them, his kind of approach to be calm but decisive and sound like he understands the situation I think was definitely to his political benefit. Well, that's probably where that East Coast uh, accent helped. I think, yeah. And I Mm -hmm. think too, I think Joe, your point earlier about radio being this very intimate medium, right? That is in your home, in your living room. I think, James, you're hitting on something. Roosevelt was needed to be this right strong and like, leader or to to give off this image of leadership but there's also i think power in the intimacy of the medium that that really Mm -hmm. matters too it's 1936 and the great depression is keeping citizens depressed americans turn to a new craze sweeping the nation a craze that reaches even into the hallowed halls of the white house eleanor i have just learned of the most diverting game Franklin, dear, I'm a little busy. No, no, I insist. It's quite droll. It's called Knock Knock. Now, now, I, I will enter, and I will say Knock Knock, and, and then you respond. <laughs> this, this will be quite good. Uh, you respond by asking, who's there? And then, <laughs> and then I will make believe as though there's some other fellow at the door. Uh, for example, oh, uh, Franklin. And then you... <laughs> And then you will inquire, <clears throat> Franklin who? And, and then, <laughs> I, I hope you're ready for this, Eleanor. Uh, and then I will respond in a punning fashion, uh, Franklin, my dear, I don't give a damn. <laughs> I'm not sure I care for that language. Oh, come now, dear, don't be an old fuddy-duddy. I know you like that Mitchell woman's book. Now, now you try. Franklin, I don't have a pun ready to hand. I'm working on a column. Indulge me, Eleanor. Indulge you? It's not even your birthday. I'll show you how it's done again. Knock, knock. Uh, Come on now, knock, knock. Who's there, Franklin? Aluminium. But that's not even a person. Oh, oh, all right. Aluminium who? Aluminium wage? Are you mad, Roosevelt? Al Smith, bursting in here to spoil my punchline, will you? What did you say, sir? I said, I said a minimum wage. Are you mad, Roosevelt? Are you sure you didn't say aluminium? Of course not. Because we were just playing a little... I was absolutely not listening as you played that ridiculous knock-knock game. Are you seriously proposing a federal minimum wage? Yes, a minimum wage. A minimum wage. Minimum wage. 
a minimum wage. Orange. Uh, wait, what? Aren't you glad I didn't say minimum wage? Uh, Roosevelt, you just can't hand the federal government this kind of power. Labor is a state's issue. We aren't a bunch of bombastic, eaten Bolsheviks. Now say that five times fast. I'd rather not. Knock, knock, Smith. What? All right. Who's there, Blastids? Neria. Neria who? Neria business, which depends for existence on paying less than living wages to its workers, has any right to continue in this country. It's a cornerstone of my new deal. Did you say nude eel? Make the eel put some clothes on. It's indecent. I'll tell you what's indecent. Letting capital run roughshod over the struggling citizens of this country during a depression such as this one. Roosevelt, I warn you, me and my pals at the American Liberty League won't stand for this socialist malarkey of yours. Knock, knock. Who's there? It's me, Garner. Garner who? Oh, John Nance Garner? Your vice president, remember? Well, that wasn't very funny. He never is. Can I come in now? If you must. Uh, Mr. Smith was just leaving. Uh, Mr. President, it's time for your fireside chat. Dash it all. Can't a man have a moment alone with his wife to play a little knock-knock? Uh, oh, oh my. I, I can come back when you're decent. Oh, I'm afraid that day may never come. Go on, Franklin. You know duty must come first. Oh, all right. Oh, and Franklin, knock, knock. Who's there? Albie. Albie who? I'll be dining with Lorena Hickok this evening, so don't wait up. Which sort of makes me wonder what were what the Republicans were doing in 1936. I have to think, like, talk about, like, do we even bother to show up? Like, should we just have a, should we just get around and just have some belts and well, be done with it? I like, think we have to remember that back then, you know, we they didn't have sophisticated polling. I'm not sure that people actually, I mean, they kind of maybe intuited that, that Roosevelt was going to win in a landslide, but it was, I don't know that it was all that obvious. Um, and so we, we sort of, what's that? I was going to say there were conservatives and Republicans who who hated the New Deal, who thought that Roosevelt was like next to Stalin. They thought it was a communist socialist plot. So it wouldn't have been, uh, you know, that much of a foregone conclusion. I think they would have had to run somebody because they weren't just going to try to let them get steamrolled by us. I, I, I mean, there I were people didn't. who thought that Roosevelt was secretly Jewish and that was part of the uh, the plot to take down America. Frank I had a teacher at Cleveland State University in the early 80s that more or less said only for the grace of God was FDR, did FDR stay on the side of democracy given a lot of the power and given that a lot of what he was doing to try to prop up the economy in the U.S., Hitler was doing in Germany, Mussolini was doing in, yes. Uh, yes. in Italy, not much difference. Can I, this is my, I want the, the, the panel to try this on for size. Ooh. Roosevelt is America's democratic dictator. In an era of totalitarianism and rising nationalism, Roosevelt, while being basically committed to the idea of democracy, right? He, he continued to run for re-election. He never tried to, um, you know, not stand for re-election, although he did, I think, push the envelope of executive power to the furthest degree of any president before him. Certainly the, the court packing thing was a pretty... Uh, brazen attempt to expand executive power. 
Uh, he also certainly, I think, embraced a cult of personality, perhaps more than than um, many other presidents. And we see this with all the ephemera that is Roosevelt themed. And, and some of it's a little tongue in cheek, right? It's not quite the the seriousness of a, of a Stalin or a Hitler style cult of personality. But certainly he's not, he was, he's not muscle bound holding a rocket launcher. Right. But he's uh, certainly, I want that, though. Right. <laughs> And he's also, I think, carefully cultivating a sense of American nationalism through the, you know, through his art projects, uh, through his kind of mass communication directly with the people, through the New Deal itself, which was, again, I think, a, an effort to kind of bind the country together, um, the industrial class, the working class, um, the agricultural class all together in kind of one big national economic engine. Uh, in in ways that that are in some ways similar to things that were going on in in Italy and Germany and in the Soviet Union at the same time. Yeah, um, I, 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 can I be the first? Like a, you sound like a nineteen thirty seven Republican, right? <laughs> well, and I, and I would say the the unprecedented third term. I think sure. yep. really yep. close to. Yeah, I guess I just don't really see the. I don't see the comparison with uh, dictators because for several reasons. One, even the court packing plan was a bill. It wasn't, it wasn't an executive order um, and, and it didn't pass. So, uh, and, then, and then, and I would say also, you know, again, I understand what you're, you're comparing him as a president relative to presidents who uh, were previous to him, but Congress was still essentially pulling the strings in the 1930s. We, it, the, the office of, there was no office of the president. He had two secretaries. Um, and, and I'm not talking about personal secretaries, I mean, like administrative assistants. And then, and then the two uh, secretaries, Missy Lehan and then Grace Tully. Um, so the, the White House didn't have the capacity, I don't think, to be, to be a dictator. The last thing I'll say is that, I mean, I do think he accrued more power during the war. And that was a bit problematic. I find the most problematic thing about his uh, power is really the period from 19, in my mind, from 1939, 1940 to Pearl Harbor, when he essentially was involving the United States in a war without, you know, he was violating the neutrality acts um but he also was and he wasn't building a military for sort of internal or conquest purposes as germany and italy and japan and arguably and i yeah really were. and i don't i don't see the arts projects at all as 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 fostering any kind of hagiography of roosevelt so you don't I mean, think orson welles couldn't have taken over the world he certainly didn't yeah. think so. but the last thing i'll say is that this is the most telling thing for me so we all know that there is a memorial to roosevelt in washington dc that was built in the 90s and it's got the four sections to it each for one of each turn he did not want that kind of memorial. The only memorial he wanted was a stone slab that he wanted placed in front of the National Archives with his name and his birth and death years. And that's all, all there was until the 1990s. So the idea that he had some sort of, you know, grandiose idea that he was like, I don't know, a Stalin or somebody else who was 
cult of personality. I just don't think that's the case. Um, I do. I think he had an ego. I think he loved getting reelected. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't. I just don't see that he's a, a democratic dictator. I don't think that that's. If I may as well, I think there's a difference in branding that's pretty important. When you look at the other dictators you named in the 30s before they are at war, we see them in uniforms constantly. A thing that we never see FDR try to claim for himself. They also, I mean, Mussolini and Hitler obviously nationalize a lot of uh, important industries. I would say the closest FDR has is Henrietta Nesbitt, who makes the muffins run on time. In other, words, um, in other words, if FDR had a better costumer, we'd have a very different conversation. Maybe. I would also say, though, he doesn't try to define the American people in opposition to another race until we get to World War II. And uh, I just put in before we really talk about it that that's like such a shameful episode of our history that the government is not done apologizing for, in my opinion. Mr. Roosevelt, there's a fella here to see you. Good God. Missy, do you ever knock? Well, that's a highly personal question, sir. Now, what shall I do about the gentleman in the lobby? Uh, Can't you see I'm reviewing the terms of my new deal? Uh, Tell him I'm busy. Tell him yourself. What am I, your secretary? Well, aren't you? (laughs) Evening, Mr. President. Don't get up. How about that gal of yours out front? You mean Missy LeHand? All the way up to her elbow, Your Honor. Who are you? And how, how did you get in here? How did I get here? How did any of us get here? A little love and the upper berth in a Pullman rail car. The upper berth in a Pullman rail car? You didn't think I was one of those Americans of lower berth, did you? Professor Quincy Adams Wagstaff, the honor is yours. Wagstaff? I I don't know a Wagstaff. And I don't know a Rumba, but I'm willing to learn if you are. I hear you're cutting America a new deal. Is that right? It most certainly is. Say, why not cut me in? I'm a lawyer, you know. I'll have you know I passed the bar in New York. That's not true. I saw you inside, flirting with a barmaid. Now see here. Now be there. Now are you. Now F off. Good to know we're both men of letters. I have half a mind to call the Secret Service and have you escorted out. When you find the other half, we can talk. Until then, let's just figure out how much money this new deal is going to give me. Well, are you out of work? Every day by five o'clock. Do you work in stocks? How dare you? I'll have you know my family hasn't been in stock since my great-great-great-grandfather came to this country, clinging to the Mayflower. What did they put him in stocks for? Mayflower's husband walked in and saw them. I'm afraid the government can't give you any money, Professor. Maybe you could just leave some out and I'll take it. Mr. Roosevelt, there's another man here to see you. Another gentleman? No. That's okay, don't get up over me. You gotta look at that beautiful girl out front. Is he my hand? I miss it a whole body. Who are you? My name is Ciccolini. I come and get the money from the government. Did you come by appointment? No, I came by the subway. Listen, you gotta help me. I'm but a poor American farmer. Really? What do you grow? Old. (laughs) What do you grow, young man? How does your family make money? Well, my cousin go to jail for making money in his basement. But me and my brothers, we farm. For plant the wheat, we get 90 cents an acre. For not plant the wheat, we get a dollar tree. Plant the cotton, we get a dollar five an acre. For not plant the cotton, we make a dollar ten. How much do you make if you plant tobacco? We plant tobacco, we get a buck and a quarter. Much if you don't plant tobacco. Mister, you can't afford us not plant tobacco. Mr. President, when this man walked into your office, I thought he was a halfwit, but now I can see he's reaching for a quarter. Sorry, I dropped my change. Send him back to the open arms of his brothers and fathers, who are waiting for him in the penitentiary. I say give him 10 at Leavenworth or 11 at 12 worth. 
What about two for a dollar at Woolworth? Enough of this. You'll make no sense. I use it to make no sense, but now if I plant the alfalfa, I make 90 cents an acre. If I not plant the alfalfa, I make a dollar tree. We all heard that, pal. Say, how much land you got? We got 210 acres. 220 when it's warm out. Why, you want to buy us some acre? Acre? I hardly know her. One more loony for the bin, FD. Uh, darn it, Missy, these clowns are giving me the business. Well, glad someone's getting the business in this room besides me. Who are you? That's our silent partner. Silent, eh? Oh, he's not going to work well in this medium. With unemployment what it is these days, he's not going to find work in any medium. My model work is a medium. Yeah, what about your father? He was at large. Where in God's name did that harp come from? You know, I never thought to ask. Wait a minute, wait a minute. For you, Frankie, I'll wait all day. I knew I recognized you reprobates. You're the Marx Brothers. That's okay, you catch us. Why did you come to Washington just to harass me? We read in the papers all about this New Deal nonsense. Blaming business. Ending up government money like cigars at a child's birthday party. You know they're calling you a Marxist? So? So you're screwing with our brand. People are saying Marx like it's a bad thing, and we need that money. I got a two teenage girls at home. I needed that money to make sure my wife never find out about them. Well, that's your problem. It's your problem, too, Bob. If you don't cut it out with all the bad press, we'll tell the whole world your deepest, darkest secrets. You would reveal that the president can't walk? What? No, I mean the affair. Which one? Exactly. Well, what do you want me to do? I can't make a national policy exception for three brothers. Four if you can, Zeppo. I don't. Nobody does. Listen, Congress would never just allow me to- Then you extend the NRA to cover movie productions. Arpo speaks. Good God, that's your voice. You underwrite movie production, we take a cut of that as producers, and a cut as actors, and a cut for negotiating this deal. Oh, and here I always thought you were the dumb brother. I'm a millionaire whose job is chasing blondes around in front of a camera. Your job is to take the blame for all the world's problems. But yeah, I'm the dumb one. We got a deal? Deal. Now, now get the hell out of my office. Come on, boys. I hear Churchill's in town and I wanted to compare cigars. What's this country coming to? Frankie, Stan Laurel and Oliver Hardy are here to discuss the tariff. Um, it shows just how much we kind of conflate the New Deal and Roosevelt together, like right. that, that they are like right. the same human person. The New De right. Deal is not a person, right? <laughs> Like, just a quick reminder, and FDR is not like this superhero that just Johnny Appleseed's New Deal programs all over America. Things along with Annie. Yes. <laughs> right, right, exactly. Um, and so just to, I, I really appreciate Margie's point that we have to draw this distinction between like Roosevelt, the human man, and the New Deal as a series of programs, which are, are inherently flawed because of government and bureaucracy and how they have to be implemented, usually at a decentralized local level. I think. Well, as we start to, first of all, wrap up today and then maybe try to figure out where we can talk about the wartime FDR, 
Um, Sandy, you asked the question about Abe Lincoln that I think is probably also fair because FDR is, uh, would you like to ask it actually? Uh, can we ask it at the beginning of the next session? Because this is going to, that would open up a whole new can of worms tonight. Okay. Wanna... We can definitely do that. <laughs> uh, we can definitely do that. All right. Uh, well, are there any final words for the moment of FDR, the, the depression years? Uh, it's funny. I actually just sent a message to James listing all the things that I still wanted to talk about. Keep the list of questions. You know, we might hopefully maybe we'll have time to get to them next just time. Just a quick one for Sylvia and maybe Margie. How the hell did Frank Capra talk a diehard Republican like Jimmy Stewart into doing a New Deal promo piece? Yeah, that was my question, unless it was more like, you know, for the war effort, I mean, Stuart did volunteer to go and fight in the war. And compile so the very distinguished when, reference. When the country is in crisis, he's willing to set aside his bipartisan thoughts or partisan thoughts and just put his shoulder to the wheel. Does that also apply to their later collaboration on A Socialist Christmas Carol? No, I was just, you know... Raising a fist at the term at the word democracy. <laughs> this is the, this is the fishy lead. Well, we'll stop part one here, and uh, we'll resume for part two with FDR: The War Years. DB Comedy presents The Electables. This episode's sketches were written, produced, and performed by Gina Bocola, Sandy Bykowski, Joseph Fedorko, Sylvia Mann, Paul Moulton, Patrick J. Riley, and Tommy Spears. Original music written and performed by Throop McClurg. Audio production by Joseph Fedorko. Sound effects procured at freesound.org. Contributions to DB Comedy are graciously accepted by going to the DB Comedy donation page at fracturedatlas.org, the nonprofit fiscal sponsor of DB Comedy. Donations are tax deductible to the fullest extent allowed by law. For more information on DB Comedy and the electables, visit DB Comedy's host page on Simplecast.com. Follow us on Facebook at DB Comedy or Democracy Burlesque. Join us on the Trinet Network and listen to us on World Perspectives Radio Chicago on Live365.com and Hard Lens Media. Thanks for listening. Thanks for downloading. Don't forget to subscribe and don't forget to like.